Miles is going to do our first uh, lead us in our first scripture reading today. So, Miles, go ahead and read for us. What's, what passage are we reading? Seven. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy six to four. Okay, Deuteronomy six to four. Go ahead and read it. Right here. Nope, here. All right. Yep. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. That's a sound familiar. All right. Thanks, Miles. All right. Our next reading today comes from Romans chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And our sermon text today is from uh, Malachi. Sometimes also pronounced Malachi, who I learned was a little known fact, an Italian prophet. Um, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, You covered the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from you. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the the spirit in the union? And what was this one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. So we are continuing our study of uh, the book of Malachi, uh, the last book of our series on the uh, post-exilic prophets. 
And so uh, by way of recap, uh, you may have remembered that the first week we looked at uh, the re- fractured relationship, the relationship that had broken down between Judeans and God, the Judeans and God. Um, after the uh, capture by Babylon uh, had shattered their civilization, uh, they began to rebuild, uh, but they were still under the dominion of Persia. And the question was that they wondered, was there still, did God still have a future for them? Were they still his people? Uh, Their present circumstances had led them to conclude that they probably weren't. And what Malachi is doing is assuring them that they do, in fact, have a future and that God is working toward bringing about all that he has promised them. Now, last week, we saw that this uh, spirit of despondency uh, among the Judeans had its effect not just among the people, but their leaders, their spiritual leaders, the priests as well. Uh, The priests were in charge of the rituals and sacrifices that taught the people uh, who God was and allowed them to draw near to God. Instead of maintaining the high standards that the priests were charged with, the priests were offering inferior sacrifices. And the problem with that was that their worship had devolved into empty ritual. And it had reinforced this uh, this dispirited attitude among the people. The priests were supposed to encourage the people to lead them into truth and and hope. And instead, uh, they had joined along with them. Uh, they they, They had fallen victim to apathy and hopelessness. Now, as we move into today's text, we see that Malachi is dealing with a very different issue. But it's also one that has resulted from this breakdown in the relationship between God and the Judeans. This time, the issue is with marriage. Uh, Now, at first, this may seem to be a a, a little out of place. Uh, You know, we've started Malachi with this reassurance that there's still a future uh, for the relationship with God and the Judeans. And then we moved on to this rebuke of the priest for offering inferior sacrifices. And now all of a sudden, Malachi is bringing up marriage. What, what, what's, what's going on here? Um, and the key point that I want to emphasize uh, and really draw out in this sermon is that for Malachi, this isn't just a laundry list of things that God has ticked off uh, at the Judeans for. Uh, no, these offenses are the result of a fundamental, uh, are all a result of this fundamental breakdown in the relationship between themselves and God. And Malachi's complaints are against the different ways the breakdown in this relationship has manifested itself among the people. Uh, so with this background in mind, let us look at the text and dig a bit deeper and see what it has to tell us today. Uh, so we begin in verse 10 with a statement that the Judeans have one father and one creator. Now, if you'll remember from our sermon last week, if you were here, Malachi used a similar technique. He took a principle, he began, a, he took a statement, a claim that everyone agreed with. Uh, in that case, it was that the son honors his father and the servant his master. And so on the basis of the strength of this universally accepted premise, uh, he made his case as to why the Judeans were in error. Now, as we will come back to later, this idea of God being one is of monumental importance to the Judeans. Uh, But for now, I want to spend a little time examining this passage before returning to this point. So just keep, just put a pin on that for right now. 
Uh, So Malachi is accusing the Judeans of being faithless to one another. And the point is that since they are all one people created by God, that they should be united. Now, uh, God created them as a people after all. And uh, the interesting thing is that the word here that's used uh, for create here is uh, very special. The Hebrew word is bara, okay? And you've probably heard me do this stick before because this is pretty important. But the the reason bara uh, is special is because God is uh, uh, is the only subject of the verb bara. Okay, no one else is ever the subject of bara. Uh, People uh, can make things, they can form things, they can fashion things, but only God can create. Bara is reserved for God alone. So one of the points when we read that word create is that this is a uniquely divine, this is a uniquely God uh, idea. And what that means uh, for the Judeans is that they're not just a group of people that are bound together because of geography or historical circumstances. Rather, the Judeans are the result of a special divine act. And that act is something that can only be performed by God himself. God alone borrows. He alone creates. And as a people specifically created to be in relationship with God, to work out God's purposes within God's creation, their faithful faithlessness then makes no sense. And it's an egregious wrong. This is why Malachi is so upset. I mean, you can really hear uh, this coming across in this passage. In verse 10, Malachi uses two words to describe God's problems with the Judeans. First, uh, this word faithless. Uh, in Hebrew, it's beged. Uh, other words that are translated for beget would be like treacherous, deceptive, deceitful. Um, in fact, the word beget is pretty interesting because uh, this is Resurrection Church, so we, we love to talk about word origins, um, is actually derived from a noun uh, that means uh, coat or garment. Okay, so that sounds kind of weird at first, but think about it. The idea is that what we're supposed to picture is that this perpetrator, this person that's acting faithless, is using his coat to cover up the victim so he doesn't see him and he can rob him. And so that's kind of the idea we're supposed to have here. Uh, The other word that Malachi uses is uh, chalal. Uh, And that's the word that's translated as profaned. Uh, And remember, the important thing about profane here is it's connected with this idea of holiness, uh, specifically as it relates to temple worship. And remember from our discussion last week that the uh, temple and the rituals associated with them were in part a way to communicate to the people the character of God so that they could draw near. And Malachi's point is to show that the Judeans' actions toward each other, their deceptiveness and their treacherous behavior, have affected their relationship with God. God is faithful, and a people who are faithless cannot draw near to God. Remember, it's a, it's a refrain that's constantly repeated throughout the Old Testament, be holy because God is holy. We're supposed to imitate God. God's people are supposed to reflect God. And part of what they're doing by reflecting God is communicating to the world what God is like. And God is not faithless. And so the result is that the Judeans' actions have led to their breakdown in their relationship with God. And in fact, it has gone so far to actually have polluted the temple. Now, 
we are told in verse 13 that this uh, offense of the Judeans is so bad that God no longer will accept their offerings. Now, this is completely shocking. And, uh, and even the way uh, Malachi describes it, it kind of comes almost as a surprise to the people. Like the people are like, what, really? You're no longer going to accept our offerings? I, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't really understand. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, but in verse 14, uh, he had, Malachi has the Judeans ask, why does God not accept their offering? And the point Malachi wants to make to the people is that their actions are not just private affairs. That's why they're surprised. They think, hey, you know, this is, I don't understand what this has to do with uh, worship. You know, maybe I, I, I like, okay, so, you know, I just listened to your whole uh, point uh, about the inferior uh, sacrifices. I, I'm starting to get that. But, you know, what I'm doing in my private life, I don't really understand I wouldn't have thought that that would have uh, an effect on worship, and especially not to the point where you wouldn't accept uh, sacrifices, because these offerings, these sacrifices were not just an empty ritual. Behind them lied a real relationship between the people and God. Remember uh, last week what we talked about, the word sacrifice means uh, to draw near. This is how you become, uh, approach God. And this is essentially the same idea. It's probably a famous passage um, that you're probably familiar with. Uh, uh, Micah 6.8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves one year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of the soul? And then the answer, he has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So for Micah, as for Malachi, the key to worship is not just the rituals. It is also the conduct of the person in everyday life. Worship is at least in part about making God and his presence and his person and his purpose a reality. It's a demonstration of who God is. And part of that is maintaining God's justice, kindness, humility in the actual world. If God is a God who is just, if he is a God that is kind, if he is a God that is humble, then his people should be. God is holy. We should also be holy. And failure to do so presents a false vision of God. Just as last week when we talked about the inferior sacrifices presented a false vision of God. It can't be tolerated. And that's why Malachi is so upset by what's going on. Now, you've probably been wondering if you missed something. What exactly is the offense that the Judeans have committed that has so angered God and led to these words from Malachi? Actually, you didn't because we're really not told much about it until verse 14. Okay? Malachi delays the announcement of the issue, and instead he focuses on the seriousness of the offense, probably because he wants to hammer home the point that it's so bad it's causing God to reject their offerings. In an ancient community where ritual and sacrifice were the primary means of relating to the divine, this was a stunning consequences. And I suspect Malachi does this because Malachi senses that the Judeans do not take the offense seriously. But what the Judeans have done that is so angered God is that they have engaged in a widespread practice of divorcing their wives and remarrying new ones. 
we learn in verse 11 that they have divorced their wives in order to marry the daughters of foreign gods. And this makes this action of divorce particularly egregious for Malachi because as verse 15 says, God seeks godly offspring. And the children of these new union will lead the Judeans away from God. And one of the things I want to emphasize here, though, I think it's important to mention, is the problem is not that these women are foreign or ethnically unrelated to the Israelites. The problem is that the women are outside the covenant. And that is absolutely foundational to this relationship between God and his people. Remember, again, Malachi is not just about getting upset about things that people are doing. It's this breakdown in the relationship that's the foundation of it all. Um, likely, this is a further outworking of this initial problem. The people no longer see themselves in relationship with God. They go to the temple. They perform the rituals. They would say to someone who asks that they're followers of Yahweh. But the covenant no longer seems to be real to them, at least in anything other than a performative way. And what Malachi is trying to do is jar them from this idea. Uh, we also read in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, about this problem. It, 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 the Ezra and Nehemiah are roughly contemporary with Malachi, same post-exilic time period. Uh, and they also see this as a problem and treat it seriously. In fact, there's this crazy part in Nehemiah. I don't know if you've ever read Nehemiah, but there's a really weird part in there where uh, Nehemiah confronts these men who have divorced their wives to marry uh, foreign women, and he pulls out their hair as a means of punishment. Uh, I'm not sure what to do with that, but it does show um, how seriously this was taken by some. Now, here's what I think is interesting about this passage and how it makes a bigger point than it might at first be apparent. The basis of Malachi's argument here is that one God created Israel. And therefore, the people should be united. That's the universally accepted premise that Malachi is starting with. And this idea of one God comes up again in verse 15, twice where God says that he made the husband and wife of the Judeans one, and also when Malachi asks the question, what is the one God seeking? So you see this repetition of these ideas. Anytime you're reading the Old Testament and you see something get repeated, a word or a phrase, it's important. So, here's the thing. If you were an ancient Israelite, the wording of one God and hearing this phrase, one God being repeated, would be highly significant and recognizable to you. The whole basis of the Israelite religion, and one of the things that they thought of about what made them special, was that they worshipped one God and not many gods. Very different than the rest of the uh, uh, cultures in the ancient world. As a result, they rejected any other rival claimants, unlike their surrounding cultures who could easily incorporate foreign divinities if it was to an advantage. You know, perhaps what's going on here is the Judeans saw the prosperity of their neighbors compared to their own. And it's no stretch of the imagination uh, when they saw their uh, neighbors prospering, they might have asked, hey, what, what's going on that, that's made your crops uh, yield so much? And they may have said, well, you know, I, uh, I worship Baal and he's a fertility god and he's awesome and he gives all this to me. Uh, and maybe these marriages were a way to secure this type of advantage for themselves. Their god had abandoned them to the Babylonians. Maybe it was time to give this Baal a try. 
After all, their friend, uh, the Canaanite, seemed to be doing pretty well for himself, and his daughter may have been pretty cute. Maybe it was time for a fresh start. But here's the thing about the Israelites. Twice a day, they had this habit. They recited words that they considered the basis of their faith. Does anybody know what that prayer that they recited twice a day was called? Does anybody know? Say it loud. Shema. It's called the Shema. It's a Hebrew word. What does that Hebrew word mean? Miles, what does it mean? Here, yes, it means here. That's right. Now, if you don't know the words, does anybody does anybody know the Shema? Can anybody say that for us? Say, can we say it in Hebrew? Go ahead. Shema Yisrael Adonai the Hinu Adonai Echad. Yeah, nice. I like the guttural that a lot of the kids added. Here, Israel, the Lord our God is one. And if you heard any variation of that, it would have instantly triggered, you know, all these memories and feelings, you know, of such great importance. This was highly significant if you were, if you were an ancient New Judean. So hearing these words, God is one, as Malachi's argument begins with, was incredibly meaningful to his audience. You know, we would just kind of read over that. Oh, one God, big deal, you know. But if you were, if you were hearing this evoked in the audience, not so much. This is big. And for the ancient Israelites, this concept of God being one is not an abstract doctrine. It was their core belief that made them different, that made them special as a people. We typically think of the idea of God being one as just a, like a, a philosophical, a theological concept. We use this boring term to describe it, monotheism. I mean, how boring and sterile is that? We ruminate over the implications of monotheism and what that might mean for the nature of God as a unique being. However, for the ancient Israelites, monotheism was a much more practical belief about the relationship of God in the world. It was living and active, and it was very much a part of their daily life. Let me try to give you an idea about what I mean by that, how that worked out. Monotheism gave assurance to the Israelites that all of creation was good, and it could be enjoyed because it was created by a God that was also good. This was in contrast to the other cultures of the time where uh, Creation was the result of a battle between competing forces. And uh, there was never, uh, it was never a complete victory. There was also always left over this uh, not insignificant, evil, chaotic force that might at any time uh, try to rear its ugly head. God was wise. And so was creation. It was ordered. You could count on it. It was sensible because it was created by God's wisdom. And as a result, that had implications for you and how you were to act in the world. It was humanity as God's chosen representatives and specifically Israel's. It was their job to replicate this wisdom by bringing order and justice to God's good works. And this would include in the realm of relationships, relationships such as marriage. And it's this logic that Malachi is invoking in his message to the Judeans by linking this fundamental belief of monotheism 
with the institution of marriage. By divorcing their wives and taking new wives, the Judeans were subverting God's wisdom in ordering the creation. As God's representatives, this was presenting a false vision of God that is treacherous and faithful instead of a God who is honest and faithful. It is no wonder God could no longer accept their sacrifices. Now notice, this actually isn't too different from last week's sermon in which the priests were offering inferior sacrifices. You know, we talked about that. Why should it make that much of a difference to God? This dead animal is just going to be burned up anyway. However, it was the symbolism behind it. It was the job of the priests to maintain the integrity of this system because the sacrificial system was a means of communicating to people what God is like. God is not blind or lame. He is whole and he is living. For Malachi, marriage worked the same way. A people who are faithless in their marriage communicated to God who is faithless. And for this reason, the practice was an abomination. It polluted the temple and it disrupted the ability of the people to draw near to God. And I think it's important to emphasize this point because this isn't so much about the, uh, uh, the, the Judeans taking foreign wives. It's the treachery and how it reflects the God the, Jude- the Judeans purported to serve. And the overall idea about reflecting God because God is one has implications, though, that stretch beyond marriage. Marriage is but one example here. In fact, if we turn to our passage from Romans, we see that Paul takes Malachi's argument that the people should be unified because God is one and takes it even to a new and bigger direction. Check out what Paul does with it. Let's look at Romans 3. By the way, for those keeping score at home, this is the third time we have used Romans to see how Paul expands Malachi's argument into new and fruitful directions. Paul begins to develop his argument by noticing that recent events, namely the death and resurrection of Christ, have fundamentally changed the world. They've changed everything. Uh, These recent events have changed everything, and it's exactly what Malachi's uh, predecessors, Haggai and Zechariah, were talking about. All the things, all these wonderful predictions that Haggai and Malachi uh, had told the people uh, were coming true in Jesus. God had shaken the heavens and the earth, and now God's glory had returned to the midst of her people in this person of Christ. And for Paul... That means that Jesus Christ has made available the righteousness of God in a way other than the Torah, than the law. Prior to that, the righteousness of God could only be found in the Torah, which was given just to the Jews and the Jews alone. In verse 23, Paul goes on to make the point that this righteousness is something that everyone in the world needs, not just the Jews. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a worldwide problem not just a problem for the Jews. And this also means that because the righteousness of God has been available through Jesus Christ and all are equally deficient, that no one has standing to argue their special status. That would include the Judeans. Paul's people may be the chosen ones, but they are also in need of God's righteousness. This is what Paul means in verse 27 when he says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. However, what I want us to pay attention to is Paul's conclusion in verse 30 and 31. This is the point that Paul's argument has been leading toward. 
What Paul wants the hearers of Romans to understand is that this monumental act of God, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that has so completely altered Paul's life is the end game for the entire story of the Jews. Because here's the thing about being Jewish. It basically boiled down to three things. There were three things that were absolutely fundamental to the Jewish faith. Uh, Number one, there was a belief in this one God, the, the Shema. A belief, there was also the belief that history was going somewhere. It was heading toward a conclusion. Uh, God would rescue creation and establish his perfect justice. And third, a belief that the Jews were the people who were going to bring about this conclusion. Uh, If you're in the theology biz, uh, we shorten these, summarize these points as the following. The Jews believed in monotheism. They believed in eschatology. They believed in election. Okay. Now in Christ, history has now reached this eschatological inclusion, this purpose that all along God had been planning for the world. And it had arrived through God's chosen people who were perfectly represented by Jesus Christ. And what Paul wants us to understand, if that is all true, then the third point, that God's oneness has great and incredible implications for this earth-shattering, exciting event. God's oneness means that all of creation and therefore all of uh, people must absolutely be part of this because God is one. So Paul concludes this argument by asking the question, is God the God of only the Jews or is God the God of everyone? And of course, Paul answers the question by drawing the logical conclusion that if God is one, God is by necessity the God of everyone. And what this means is as a result of God's righteousness being poured out by Jesus Christ, everyone can now claim God as our God and thus join the Jews in confessing the Shema that the Lord, our God, is one. The our God is no longer restricted to just the Jews. Everyone can now has the opportunity to join with them in saying that God is now our God. As Paul starts out his argument in verse 22, he says, there is no longer distinction. Now, the word distinction here is interesting. It comes from the Greek word. I can do some Greek. (laughs) You know what the Greek word is for distinction here? Diastole. Diastole. Does anybody, anybody in the healthcare field? Yeah, what's, what's diastole sound like? Yeah, diastolic. It's it's the same. It's where we get the same word. So the idea is that you know when you have the heart, the heart contracts, and then it expands. The contraction is systole, the expansion is diastole. In other words, the heart is moving apart. Okay, and the idea here is that that no longer happens. We no longer move apart because of Christ and because God is one. We now can draw together. Far from being a claim of exclusivity that is sometimes implied by the our God part of the Shema, for Paul, the Shema now necessitates a vision of redemption of the whole world, of people from every tribe and nation. And that is exactly in line with Zechariah's message in 14.9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. 
Now, because of Christ, everyone without distinction can claim the Lord as their God. So what does this mean for us? Uh, I got basically two conclusions here. First, Malachi wants us to understand that as God's people, and thus as representatives to this world, we communicate something about God's character. Last week, we looked at how the sacrifices communicated information to God. And it was why God was so angered by the inferior sacrifices. Now we see Malachi berating the people about broken marriages. And God's upset at the people for the same reason. That as representative of God, their marriages present an incorrect picture of the character. God is one and faithful. And the people have presented God as unfaithful and divided. So one thing we are supposed to understand by that is that our marriages are a, a, a picture of the character of God. As people who call themselves Christians, they're a message. And that message has implications beyond uh, just not getting divorced, though. God is other things besides faithful. He's loving. He's providing. He's self-sacrificial. And again, we would do well to turn toward Christ, the most perfect representation of the character of God, to guide our married lives. Because they present a vision of the person of God. That is why Paul is able to say in Ephesians, for example, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, let's say you're thinking to yourself, maybe you're a kid and you say, okay, that sounds great, but I'm not married. Uh, What does Malachi have to tell me? That's a good question. Uh, Marriage is only a part of this overall concept. It's one representative part of this. But part of what Malachi is telling is there are marriages and and other relationships are not a private part of ourselves that is divorced from our religious life and our worship. So we can apply this similar thinking to other relationships in our life because all our relationships communicate something about God. That means that if you're a kid and you're not married, or you're single, or whatever, that means your relationship with your friends and other people is a a way, an important way of demonstrating what God's values. Being faithful, being truthful, being kind and caring in your relationship shows God to other people. Uh, Throughout the Bible, uh, you know, another way you can uh, take this, throughout the Bible where you read that God cares about those who are excluded the poor and the weak. You know, Jesus constantly is going out of his way to reach out to these kind of people. So maybe befriending those who are excluded is a way that shows the world what God looks like in our relationship. It's another way you can take this. Now, the second thing I want to point out here is that Malachi takes this oneness of God, but he only goes so far. As we saw in the Romans 3 passage, Paul takes this idea and he runs with it even further. Uh, For Paul, it means that our God can become God for everyone. And it means that there is no longer any distinctions that we can draw among ourselves. Paul says because of the oneness of God, we no longer should move apart, but we should now draw together. And what that means is because the Lord our God is one, we should no longer see ourselves as distinct by whatever category we divide ourselves, ethnicity, nationality, wealth, status. They no longer matter because God is one. We must be done with all those artificial and man-made distinctions, and we must give up any boasting and privilege associated with them, just as Jesus surrendered his heavenly privileges and his divine status. All of these former categories present a God who is divided and not a God who is one. 
That's why Paul spends so much time and so passionately argues this, not only in Romans, but in Galatians. Basically, the whole book of Galatians about him making this point. He believes so strongly that the church must look like and reflect this fundamental pillar of Jewish thought that God is one and that has so beautifully and purposely demonstrated in the life of Christ. And if our church is to bear Christ's name, we must also have that same passion. As Paul says in Galatians, on another variation on the Shema, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus.